Hello, everybody. Before I begin, I'm not proselytizing. I'm not evangelizing. I'm not converting. I'm not persuading. I'm not convincing. I'm not trying to have anybody join anything. I'm just being honest about John Calvin, Calvinism, and his controversial way of approaching those who did not accept Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Jesus who is commonly called Christ by many today. I'm just stating the facts, then I'll state my opinions about the facts later. ReasonableTheology.org, the five points of Calvinism defining the doctrines of grace. What are the five points of Calvinism and what do these doctrines teach us about salvation? Known as both the doctrines of grace and the five points of Calvinism, these doctrines are named for the distinct theological stances taken by the reformer John Calvin, who didn't use this term himself. The five points of Calvinism are total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. You have likely come across the acrostic TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, as memory aid for these doctrinal positions. Below is a brief description of the doctrines represented by each letter. Total depravity. Due to sin, all of mankind is completely sinful or depraved. Every part of fallen man is corrupted by sin. He is a creature that is incapable of obeying the law of God. We see in Romans chapter 3 verse 10 that no one is righteous. And in Romans chapter 3 verse 23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So much for the common belief that mankind is basically good. Understanding that we are completely sinful or totally depraved is an essential part of fully appreciating God's grace and rescuing sinners from the punishment that we deserve. This depravity affects every part of the human experience and and spiritually we are quote-unquote dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. This doctrine does not teach that each man is as wicked as he could be. The fact that everyone isn't an anarchist or a psychopath doesn't negate this doctrine. Instead, what is being taught is that our depravity is total in reference to our complete rebellion against God. Psalm chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, and our inability to do good. Romans chapter 8, verse 7 through 8, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, of course. Unconditional election. Also known as sovereign election, this is the teaching that God's rescuing of sinners is entirely due to his own will and good pleasure. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. Salvation is not brought about in any way by our actions or decisions. Remember, Scripture teaches that we are spiritually dead. Because of this, we cannot and will not turn towards God on our own. Instead, it is God who elects believers to salvation, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30. He does this based solely on His grace, not our works, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Believers were chosen by God before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6. This further emphasizes our inability to earn salvation by our work since election predates our very existence. The Bible teaches that those who place their faith in Christ are those whom he has elected unto salvation. Acts chapter 13 verse 48. Jesus said, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. John chapter 6 verse 44. See also John chapter 6 verse 65. The Bible is clear that it is God who saves and that he does so according to his grace, not on the condition of our works or foreseen response to this grace. It is in this sense that election is unconditional. 
And note on election. The idea of election may be new to you, as we have seen we're spiritually dead in sin, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and depraved, unable, and unwilling to choose God, Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 11. Furthermore, the Bible says that belief is due to God's sovereign election from before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, and it is not contingent on our actions, Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Salvation is a work of God in us from start to finish. This theological stance is found throughout scripture. Jesus came to quote unquote save his people from his from sins Matthew chapter one verse twenty nine and laid down his life down for the sheep, which represents believers John chapter ten verse eleven. Furthermore he taught that the Son of Man came to quote unquote to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew chapter twenty verse twenty eight. See also Matthew chapter twenty six verse twenty eight and Hebrews chapter nine verse twenty eight. Limited atonement Limited atonement can be a difficult doctrine and one that should be handled with care. It's likely the most controversial and misunderstood aspect of Reformed theology. So this section's a bit longer than the others. Atonement refers to the forgiveness of our sins by means of Jesus' sinful life and sacrificial death. Christ atoned or paid for our sins on the cross, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. So far, so good. This much is agreed upon by just about everyone who would consider themselves to be Christian. Calvinism is distinctive in that it teaches Jesus' death on the cross did not merely make salvation possible for those who choose to receive it, but that it made salvation defi- it made salvation definite for those who have been elected by God. For this reason, many prefer to refer to this doctrine as definite atonement, as there is nothing limited about the power or effectiveness of Christ's atoning sacrifice. His sacrifice is completely sufficient to save sinners, but is made definite only for those whom God has chosen. When looking at this doctrine, it's important to note that all theological frameworks limit the atonement in some respect, um, aside from universalism and which teaches that all will be saved. Either Jesus' death was intended for absolutely everyone, but is unable to save any, but those who are well, it says either Jesus' death was intended for absolutely everyone, but is unable to save any, but those who respond to faith limit in its effectiveness, or his death was completely effective in atoning for the sins of those whom it was intended for, and so the atonement is limited in its intended recipients. Um, I know this. I know that was very much wordy. What I, basically they're trying to figure out because you have most you have people saying. That Jesus' death covers everybody, including those who don't believe in him. Then you have the traditional view where people are saying, well, it's only for those who live a Christian life. I'm glad I can simplify that. Stated another way, either Christ's atoning death was meant for the salvation of all, but is limited in its ability to accomplish this, or the intent of the atonement was limited to fully redeeming all of God's elect. Just stick to my... Uh, commentary on that originally, you won't be confused. The latter is the reform position as articulated by Calvinism. This view is reflected in Acts chapter 13, verse 48, and we see that as many as were ordained to eternal life believe. Believers are those who are appointed to eternal life by God. Irresistible grace. No one can be saved unless they are first drawn by God. John chapter 6, verse 44. 
Irresistible grace does not teach that God's calling cannot be resisted for a period of time, but that this resistance will ultimately be overcome. For this reason, a better term may be effectual grace, signaling that God's intentions will have their intended effect on a person's life. We cannot thwart the will of God to save us. In short, this is the belief that all who are called by God to believe in Jesus will be saved. In John chapter 6, verse 37, Christ states, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And in John chapter 6, verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. God's sovereign election is not contingent on our response. Those who are called by him will ultimately obtain justification and glorification. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30. Um, the last one, perseverance of the saints. If you have been justified before God, you cannot lose your salvation. Once a person is truly saved, the salvation is eternally secure. In speaking about his sheep, Jesus taught that no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the not. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. John chapter ten verse twenty through twenty nine. Rather than having to hold on to our salvation, the Bible teaches that when a person believes in Christ, they immediately obtain eternal life. John chapter four verse twenty four to and John chapter John chapter five verse twenty four and John chapter six verse forty seven. That cannot be lost. John chapter ten verse twenty seven to twenty eight. Romans chapter eight verse thirty one through thirty nine. Um. I have trouble with the last part because it's very judgmental. Um, because it, this is what this site says. Some, not, I don't agree with everything I say. Like in the beginning, they were saying that universalism is false in terms of the whole everybody being saved um, belief. I don't call that false because the heart of the person says but my God is so beautiful and at the same time we don't there's complex reasons for not being a part of the faith there's so many layers multi-layers and so in this article, they say those who do appear to permanently fall away from the faith were never, truly, were never true believers. First John chapter 2, verse 19. I think that's dead wrong because what about uh, church hurt? What about trauma? What about parts of the Bible that appear to be vague and ambiguous and unclear and cryptic what about parts of the bible that are difficult to understand mysterious there there are parts of the bible that scream enigma it's puzzling it's mysterious again um or or what if you were taught that the Bible is for one political party and that's it. Or what if you were taught a supremacist approach to scripture? So that whole not true believers, that is very unchristlike and judgmental to say. Because we don't know why some people don't come back to the faith. You have to ask them lovingly. 
you have to lovingly engage in conversation with them because each person's reason for not being Christian again is diverse. That's like saying, well, universalism is false. To me, it's not false because the person is saying, I want God. I think that God is so good, he should be able to save everybody. That's not an insult. That's just really um, appreciating the heavenliness, the, the heavenly matchlessness of God. I'm not disrespecting traditional view. I respect traditional people. I, I respect traditional biblical religious people. I do, with utmost uh, respect. At the same time, you know that irresistible grace we just talked about? They're basically saying God is irresistible because God is... He's a connector. So that's what they're saying. I, I never really like judging people's reasons. It's like, no, get to know people. And so... since And it says, since we all struggle with sin, we can take comfort in this doctrine... I don't think the struggle is with sin. I think the struggle is how should we be appropriately fully human? Let me explain what that means. How do we go about each and every side of us appropriately? I use that word again because It's the same way of saying properly, right? And so, y'all pretty much get the point. Um, I here, here are my quick points about those things. Um, I do not believe that human beings are in total depravity. I believe that human beings are going through a complicated journey of developing in full humanness and full humanity that is that is such a monumental um, graduality that at times errors are committed. There are times because of ignor- because of innocent ignorance or because of beautiful misunderstandings that people have a tough time being human sometimes. So, depravity is not the right word to use in this case. I dare say the right word to use is um, progression. When people are growing up, a lot of the choices that make you a call bad is because of a lack of healthy information that they were looking for. So, out of that choice, so out of that understandable frustration those choices occur so not every choice I would say is bad it's more of people are 
blossoming. And when you're blossoming, you're not going to have all the facts that you need. So at times, emotion influences decisions. So I want to go to the next point. Unconditional election. I don't think that God has a chosen people. I also don't think that God has a rejected people. I think that Christ likeness is something that people have to make their own decision on. This is how I define Christ likeness. Wholesomeness, being whole as a person. And you don't need religion to do that, in my opinion. Because of I've met whole some whole people who did not practice any religion. So I don't think election is the right word. I think that when people choose to be godly, the same definition of Christ likeness I just gave, meaning anybody can do that. You know, anybody can do that, even people who aren't Christian. I've experienced godliness from them, so I'm speaking from my experience. I don't think there's an election. I think that people um, are so into figuring it out. Not in a selfish way, in a selfless way. We're trying to figure out this existence we have and why is it considered brief and how do we keep from mishandling our limitations? How do we correctly handle our limitations, you know? And who controls the narrative of uprightness? Why can't it be that uprightness is something that we do not because we were we have this right addiction? You always got to be right, and I can never be wrong. That's an addiction too. So I think that um, moral um, beauty is not about who's in, who's out, or Conditional or unconditional, it's more about the does a person have a pure-hearted intentionality towards self and others? So those are my thoughts on that. Um, okay, limited atonement. Um, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. I think that When we say atonement, it shouldn't be because we have to apologize for nature and ask for. Scripture says sin nature, right? Um, I don't think people are born in sin or shaped in iniquity. I think that people have a varied reasons for what is called the duality between good and evil. I have a hard time imagining God frustrating God's self by making people that are depraved humans 
that has nothing to do with God. I can't imagine God being faulted for that. I I just don't like that at all. But limited atonement, I think a, people have their own ways of atoning. Um, even secular people have their own ways of atoning. I've seen it. They make amends, and they say, I made a mistake, and I grow. So atonement is not just a religious thing. Anybody can atone. Most people atone for something. It means repairing. It means making amends. It means seeking forgiveness. It means growing up as a person. So when I think of atonement, I don't think of religion. I think of a universal way that most people behave. Um, Irresistible grace. Most people have irresistible grace about themselves. The way you want to connect and stay, you want to get connected and stay connected. You know, they say that in church. But most people have that mentality of get connected, stay connected. And we show that with each other. Perseverance of the saints. I've seen non-Christian people be saintly. I've witnessed it personally, so they have perseverance. What I mean by saintly, it's their angelic treatment of themselves and the many others around them and in life in general. So those are my thoughts on all these principles. I think that um, redemption is not a Christian thing. It's a universal thing. So limited atonement for last time, for me, it's about um, it shouldn't be close to people who actually want to change for the better positively I just wanted to state that now here we go um did John Calvin endorse the killing of his opponents this is true challenge dot one on the internet you'll find statements like these before I state them by Spencer D. Gear. Calvin had 57 people put to death in 16 years that is a recorded fact should heretics non-Calvinists be burned alive? Whosoever shall now contend that it is unjust to put heretics and blasphemers to death, knowingly and willingly, and cure their guilt. It is not human authority that speaks. It is God who speaks and prescribes a perpetual rule for his church. John Calvin said that if you don't believe heretics should be killed, you're worthy to be killed. Should heretics be burned at the stake as Calvin practice? If you say no, you should be glad you don't live in Calvin today or else he might have burned you alive. 18 recorded here. Calvin's character has nothing to do with the doctrines contained with the theological label Calvinism. Calvin, heresy, and capital punishment. Did John Calvin, the Genevan reformer, authorize the killing of his opponents? Take a read of Did Calvin Murder Servitus? Church historian Earl E. Can- Earl E. Car- Cairns wrote, in order to set up an effective system in Geneva, um, Calvin used the state to inflict more severe penalties. Such penalties, pre- such penalties proved to be much too severe. 58 people being executed and 76 exiled by 1546. Servitus 1511 through 1553. 
who questioned the doctrine of the Trinity was executed in 1553. Though we cannot justify these procedures, we can understand that people of these days believe that one must follow the religion of the state and that disobedience could well be punished by death. This belief was, he was held by both Protestants and Roman Catholics. Some of Calvin's regulations also would today be considered an unwarranted interference in the private life of the individual. Cairns, 1981, volumes 311 through 312. Yale University Church historian Kenneth Scott Latourette wrote of the situation with Michael Servetus. More serious was the test given by Michael Servetus, 1511-1553. Deeply religious and devoted to Christ, wishing to restore what he believed to be true Christianity, he would not conform with the accepted doctrine of the, tr of the Trinity. He also denounced predestination and infant baptism and believed that the millennial reign of Christ was about to be was about to begin. He and Calvin had already violently disagreed when in 1553, fleeing from condemnation for heresy in Roman Catholic Vienne and passing through Geneva, he was recognized and arrested certainly at Calvin's instance. In his trial for heresy, Calvin's enemies rallied to his support. Had he been acquitted, Calvin's power in, Gene in Geneva would have been threatened. Instead, Servetus demanded that Calvin be arrested as a false accuser and a heretic, be driven out of the city, and his goods be given to him. Servetus. Servetus was condemned by the civil authorities on the charge that he had denied the Trinity and rejected baptism, offenses punishable by death under the Justinian Code. In spite of Calvin's plea for a more merciful form of execution, Servetus was burned at the stake October 27, 1553, crying through the flames, O Jesus, thou Son of the Eternal God, have pity on me. The condemnation of Servetus was a major defeat for Calvin's opponents. Henceforward, his position in Geneva was not to be seriously contested. Latourette, 1975, volume 759, also available here. Um, a professor of church history at Yale University of an early generation, George Parker Fisher, wrote, In a commonwealth based on such principles as was that of Geneva, it was inevitable that outspoken religious dissent should be suppressed by force. The modern idea of the limited of dissent function of the state had not yet arisen. In a system which had ruled the world for centuries, heresy was considered a crime which the civil authority was bound to punish. The Old Testament theocratic view was held to still be applicable to civil society. Although there, were for, although there were occasional pleas put forth by the reformers for toleration, their general position is clearly defined in the words of Calvin. Seeing that the defenders of the papacy are so bitter in behalf of their superstitions that in their atrocious fury they shed the blood of the innocent, it should shame Christian magistrates that in the protection of certain truth, they're entirely destitute of spirit. Uh, wow. Um, okay, where am I? Hmm. Basically, y'all get the point. I'm going to stop right there. And let y'all just take that all in.
Um, who I wow, um, I'm stuck to hear my thoughts on that. That makes me dislike John Calvin because. Heresy is a terrible reason for capital punishment. Um, And I say that because, okay, that's like, I mean, that, I mean, think about, that's no different than Constantine. Um, I remember learning about the early church and they were big into not being part of military, police, and government, right? And that anybody who's a Christian, they would have the person not be military, police, or government, right? And if they tried to run, they would, say, they would send a letter for them to resign, to quit, because they didn't feel comfortable even going to war, they didn't feel comfortable being in charge of things that could cause them to have a hard time reconciling. How can I be a Christian in politics? If politics wasn't their thing. And now that it's the normal thing to do to have Christians in those levels of positions, um, that's something that hasn't truly been addressed properly in church. Like, how do we handle these things? How do we stay true to scripture, but be servant leaders in the best ways that we can. So I noticed that. And if John, if we lived in those times today, anybody who's not a Christian, most, many people would, billions of people would be killed if we had a John Calvin's way. And that, and and I do not like that we name anything in religion after a person that's not Jesus. I don't think that is healthy because that causes idol worship in the sense of you're idolizing human being when, no, Jesus is the reason for Christianity. So everything should be named after him. That's why I do not like that Lutheranism is named after Martin Luther. I I think Lutheran should just change the name. Calvin, just change the name. Change the name. John Calvin is not the savior. Martin Luther is not the redeemer. No. Just name it all after Jesus. Keeps idolatry from occurring. Okay. This is the last thing I want to share for today. Um, This is another reason why I feel disillusionment with how people go about religion. And I have to be honest about this. This is, again, a Christian article. But again, for this point, I'm stating the facts. I'm not being churchy and I'm not being preachy. Here we go. SoulShepherding.org, Jesus Set Boundaries, by Bill Galtier, 
We talk with pastors, leaders, counselors, parents, and other caregivers who are struggling to be cheerful givers. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. In their helping of others, they become tired, stressed, or burned out. Problems with setting boundaries are a main reason why many pastors and leaders experience overwhelming ministry stress and eventually burnout. Most people are surprised when I showed them from the Bible examples of Jesus setting boundaries and practicing personal soul care. It's no wonder we overdo in ministry, get worn out, and even burn out. Jesus had far more stress, far more pressure, and far more responsibility than any of us, and yet he remained relaxed, joyful, and generous with people. He models and mediates for us living in God's, God's rhythms of grace. Before we consider the scriptures on Jesus' way of life, let's make sure that we understand what our boundaries are and their importance to us in our relationship with the Lord. Why setting boundaries is important. Personal boundaries are what define your identity. They're like the property lines around a home. This is my property and that is not my property. This is me, what I value, am good at, believe, need, or feel, feel, and that is not me. To know yourself and be secure that you are loved is essential to all relationships and activities. The better your boundaries of self-awareness and self-definition are, the greater your capacity to offer empathy and love to others. Good boundaries help you to care for others because you have a stable foundation to operate from and are not distracted or depleted by personal insecurities or blind spots. That's why it's not selfish or unloving to have boundaries and take care of yourself. As I share in my book, Your Best Life in Jesus' Easy Yoke, it's especially important for pastors, ministry leaders, and other caregivers to learn to set limits for their own soul care. First of all, because they have needs to be loved and respected as much as anyone else. Secondly, because a ministry leader with weak, poorly defined, or insecure boundaries will eventually become so stressed or emotionally depleted as to be ineffective or inappropriate in helping others. Boundary problems are why pastors fall. Problem setting boundaries. Tired caregivers often have trouble saying no and avoid speaking the truth in love. They are more readily drawn into trying to rescue other people and without realizing it may end up enabling selfish or irresponsible behavior in the people they're trying to help. They may get so enmeshed with the people they care for, trying to continue to please them and walking on eggshells for fear of upsetting them, that they lose themselves. They lose track of what they need and what's important to them or what God has called them to do. At some point, they may realize that they're not being their true God-created and God-redeemed self. Usually, people who minister to others as pastors or counselors are sensitive, hearted, and prone to take on other people's problems. If they don't have clear personal boundaries and limits, they get weighed down and walked on. Eventually, they start having problems with anger, resentment, stress overload, stress overload or burnout. They just, can't continue, they just can't continue being so helpful and caring all the time. I thought it wasn't nice to say no in the early years of my ministry as a counselor and pastor. Like many Christian leaders, I had the problem feeling guilty if, if I set boundaries. I thought I had to say yes to what people felt they needed from me. I tried to please people and make them happy. I never wanted anyone to be disappointed or upset with me. To me, it seemed selfish or not nice to say no to people with hurts and needs. 
Finally, I realized that I was not experiencing Jesus' words. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Acts chapter 20, verse 35. The problem was me. I was not a cheerful giver. I was giving out of compulsion and emptiness and wasn't experiencing the grace of God abounding to me so that I could become a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 through 9. I wasn't looking to God enough, but was relying on myself to do more to help other people. My pressured, enmeshed, and selfless way of helping others was causing me to be more and more anxious, depressed, and angry, setting boundaries in Jesus' way why he didn't burn out. One of the things that helped turn me around before I eternally burned out was to look prayerfully at the life of Jesus. I studied the Gospels carefully and learned some things that surprised me because I hadn't been taught them in church. I saw Jesus setting boundaries repeatedly. I share the full results of this study into the confident and peace-filled life of Jesus in which he offers to us in my book, Your Best Life in Jesus' Easy Yoke. Here are a few thoughts. I discovered that in his humanity, Jesus had limitations that he accepted in a relaxed way, like being in a human body that needed nourishment and rest and could only be in one place at a time. Like they're only being 24 hours in a day. Unlike the ambitious, overworking leaders I've talked with, I've talked with, Jesus didn't try to accomplish 26 hours of activity in a 24-hour day. Jesus had personal needs that he put a priority on, sometimes even over the needs of other people, and he did so without feeling guilty. Primarily, his personal soul care had to do with separating himself from people to be alone with God, who he called Abba, Papa. Jesus lived in a rhythm of life that not only kept him free from burnout, but far beyond that, it kept him full of grace and truth. It kept him full of God and therefore ready and able to be compassionate and generous in his response to people, their needs, interruptions, and crisis situations. Unlike many other servants of the Lord, Jesus did not live on the defensive, overextending himself and getting more and more tired and finally taking a break instead. Jesus lived on the offensive in dealing with temptation and Satan. He was proactive in that he consistently invested in his intimacy with Abba, and this gave him energy and focus. Because he lived this way, he was never in danger of burnout. Another thing I saw in the Gospels is that Jesus wasn't always nice to people. Often he didn't do what people wanted him to do. There were many people he didn't help, and whenever he did help other people, he expected them to do their part. For instance, even in Jesus' miracles, he asked people to do something, usually something they felt they couldn't do. The blind man had to walk a long way to get to the pool of psyllium to wash the mud out of his eyes. These understandings about Jesus' way of life helped me to trust that it was right, not only healthy, but also holy for me to learn how to say no to people, speak the truth in love, and live within my personal limitations. A Bible study on examples of Jesus setting boundaries in outline form, I'd like to share with you some of the key points of my Bible study on Jesus setting boundaries. This is the same outline I've used in many classes I've taught to pastors, church counselors, and other ministry leaders on setting limits and learning to be joyful givers. I encourage you to look up the scriptures and study their context and other related passages from the Bible. Meditate and pray. Ask Jesus to teach you to live your life in the way that he would if he were you. Jesus accepted his personal limits, part of his incarnation. Meeting his personal needs, he ate healthy foods, got the sleep he needed, and even took naps, took time to relax, and did a lot of walking. Matthew chapter 26, verse 18 and 20. 
Mark chapter 1, verse 16. Mark chapter 3, verse 23. Mark chapter 4, verse 38. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. John chapter 10, verse 40. John chapter 12, verse 2. Receiving support from friends, he sought the company of friends. Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 38. Enjoying solitude, he withdrew from the crowds to go away on retreat alone or with friends. Enjoying the moment, these people, this place, this time. He left one city to go to another because he couldn't be in two places at the same time. Mark chapter 1, verse 38. Unhurried pace of life. He was never in a hurry except to go to Jerusalem and embrace his cross. John chapter 11, verse 6. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Abandoning outcomes to God. Jesus was tempted to become paralyzed with fear about the cross. Satan and his demons, along with many people who hated him, were trying to kill him. Would he make it to the cross to die for us? To be lifted up publicly? So as it draws people to God, he let go. He chose not to force things, but to trust the Father's will. To the Father, he abandoned the outcomes of his sufferings and trials to come, as he always did. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. Jesus said no to inappropriate behavior. Demands. He withdrew from the crowds who wanted him for one-on-one time with the Father. Luke chapter 5, verses 15 through 16. Abuse. He fought his way through the crowd that was trying to throw him off a cliff for claiming to be the Messiah. Luke chapter 4, verse 28 through 30. Entitlement. He didn't give in to his mother and brothers who tried to use their relationship with him to pull him away from the crowd he was ministering to. Matthew ch- chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. Baiting questions. When the religious leaders asked him baiting questions to make him look foolish, he answered with incisive questions of his own. Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 through 27. Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. Cynicism. He said no to Herod's mocking demand. Show us a sign that you are the son of God. Luke chapter 23, verses 8 through 9. Manipulation. He said no to Peter and the disciples who had an inappropriate agenda for Jesus to a political king or military warrior rather than a sacrificial lamb. Matthew chapter 16, verse 23. Pride. He didn't heal those who were too proud to trust him. Matthew chapter 13, verse 58. Jesus spoke the truth and love to those stuck or wrong. Exploitation. He used a whip to clear out the temple of the vendors and money changers who were taking advantage of the poor and turning God's house into a marketplace. Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 17. John chapter 2, verse 12 through 16. Addiction. He told the rich young ruler that he couldn't that he couldn't help him until he gave away the money that was controlling him. The money that was controlling him. Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 21. Misguided. He rebuked the disciples who tried to keep the little children away from him and told them they needed to emulate the children's faith. Matthew chapter 19, verse 13 through 15. Jesus had expectations for people in need. What do you want? Two blind men called out to him for help from the Jericho Road. He asked them, what do you want me to do for you? They needed to ask for what they needed and they needed to trust him. Matthew chapter 20, verse 29 to 34. Do you want to get well? For 38 years, the invalid at the sheep gate pool hadn't been able to get into the miracle waters. He felt helpless and sorry for himself. He expected someone to fix his problem. Jesus challenged him. Do you want to get well? Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. It was up to him to be motivated and to take responsibility for himself. John chapter 5, verse 1 through 14. Also, I will say this. 
within that same story, because I have a Bible in my hand right now, John chapter 5 verses um, 14 through 15, later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Some manuscripts include here verses 3 through 4. Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, or in part, paralyzed, and they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. See the biggest words? See you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Do you believe a father sought deliverance for his son who was mute and had seizures and said to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus put it back on the father. If you can, everything is possible for him who believes the father needed to believe that Jesus could cure his son. Mark chapter 9 verse 17 through 27. Jesus offered grace and truth according to the need. The humble and broken, to the woman caught in adultery, offered grace. Neither do I condemn you. In truth, go and sin no more. The proud and self-righteous, to the Pharisees who tried to condemn this woman and to trap Jesus, he listened, grace, and then confronted their pride and scapegoating with the truth. Let him who is without sin throw the first stone. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. That's not the way of saying it. Jesus taught us examples of how to be setting boundaries, personal prayer time. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Matthew chapter six, verse six. Be honest and direct. Don't pressure people or try to get them to do things. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Matthew chapter five, verse 37. Set priorities. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Luke chapter 16, verse 13. Please God, not people. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from only God? Obey God. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered. Matthew chapter 20, Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 31. Learn more from Jesus on how to live with good boundaries. In my book, Your Best Life in Jesus easy yoke i i show you how apprenticing yourself to jesus learning to live in this easy yoke is the key to a life of peace and power okay i got plenty of time so i'll say this off the top there are times where jesus used strong language blind guides blind fools whitewashed tombs Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Snakes, brood of vipers, serpents. How you escape being condemned to hell. Uh, he called Herod the fox. Um, and then I got this right, this story right in front of me. When it was all, you know, basically... He made a whip of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold disciples, to, to those who sold doves, I'm sorry, to those who sold doves, he said, 
Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into the market. His disciples remember that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And he just went righteously off. So I learned that even in the faith-based life, that you can't be nice all the time. I learned that as a Christian, even Christians can't be nice all the time. And that was hard to deal with. I mean, really rough to deal with for me. I learned I couldn't be nice all the time. Not just, I learned it more through the Bible than experience because experience had me confused. But I was able to read the life of Jesus. I said, oh my, I can't be polite all the time. I can be appropriately harsh and I can be nice. I can be not nice as long as I don't sin. So I thought I had to be nice all the time. I thought I had to play nicey nice. I but then I was taught a bad lesson. You have to be passive aggressive all the time. Jesus was never passive aggressive, thankfully. And Jesus wasn't nice all the time, thankfully. So the more I read the life of Jesus, who he really was, it freed me. So now in my interactions with people, yes, I, I yes, I do COVID nineteen protocols. Nothing to worry about, people. And I'm 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 good. I'm all right. But that helped me out so much because I saw all these things like, let me go by it really easily. Basically, I saw believers, a lot of them not take um, personal soul care seriously. I saw a lot of church people not take personal soul care seriously. I saw a lot of them doing things. I would overhear them saying, I don't want to do this, but I'll do it like a favor for a person or a ministry assignment or can't join a ministry. And so many ministries want you to do stuff all the time. Like I saw a lot of church people please people and not God, obey people and not God, not set healthy priorities, not be honest and not direct. I saw them pressure people and try to get them to do things. Um, I saw either too much grace or just all truth and no grace. Um, In personal prayer time, I saw believers when they would pray, I could tell that they were holding back in the sense that They weren't telling God everything. I know some people like, but some people have private things to pray to God about. I get that. But after I would see them pray after taking an assignment they did not want, because I'll overhear them say to a person, I didn't want this. They would still say, hey, God, give me the strength to do all these things that I really don't want to do, but I'll just do it. I saw that before in in um, church, and that was off-putting. Um, expectations for people in need. I saw unhealthy expectations for people in need. Like the same people I told you about were praying. Basically, they're trying to make the person God instead of a person. 
do all these things, even if it's outside of their pedigree, outside of their qualifications, and outside of what outside of their capabilities, right? In church, I didn't see enough speaking the truth and love to those stuck or wrong. Or the closest I got to see was the preaching. But when it came to preaching, I recognized that it was often incomplete in the sense that it was so about what scripture said that when I saw construct when I saw criticism, I didn't see a criticism that was about okay, let us um, figure out how to restore this person. When I saw preachers either all anger or all nicey nice. It was either it was just always one sided. There wasn't a combination of grace and truth. It was either extreme one or extreme two. Right? Like for I'll give you an example. When if church people weren't evangelizing enough or just did something that scripture warned against, it could be anything. It was Joking too much and then get serious or too serious and not enough, you know, calming. Hey, this is constructive criticism. I'm not attacking you. I saw those extremes in church and that concerns me. Saying no to inappropriate behavior. I wish I saw more of that in church. The inappropriate behavior to always have people do ministries, do these events, sign up for this, sign up for that, do it, do it, do it. And I would see them do it. And I could, and I could, I would hear them muttering, "I don't want to do this. I'm sick of this. I don't want to do this. Wish people stop asking me stuff. Can't they just leave me alone?" But I see these same believers doing it. So they had, they they didn't know how to handle manipulation, the cynicism, the sense, of, the distorted sense of entitlement. Maybe they had a sense of abuse. They didn't like the demands. And, you know, they didn't like the pride that they got from other people. And I saw a lot of believers not meeting their personal needs, not receiving enough support from friends, not enjoying enough solitude, not even enjoying solitude at all, not enjoying the moment these people displaced this time, living hurried paces of life, and not abandoning outcomes to God but to people. And another thing was I saw believers... Um, keeping toxic people in their lives even though clearly they shouldn't be around. Right? Because there are two verses that I must read to you that often believers don't quote in church. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And then this is what I see in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20. 
20. Walk with the wise and become wise for a companion of fool suffers harm. Right? I didn't hear that talked in church, but I read the scriptures. And, um... Okay, I'm going to give you one more to quote. One more to quote, then I'll just talk. Okay. Um... Let's try to back up what I say with the Bible. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22. Reject every kind of evil. Um... New American Standard Bible, abstain from every form of evil, abstain from all appearance of evil, right? They're all saying the same thing. Let me get on with it. Often I saw believers confusing sin, you know, you know, sinners with, if you would just love on them, they would change. If you give them God's love, eventually they'll come around. But there were some people that they kept, and I'm like, why are they around they're never going to change. Even if you love on them, they keep getting worse and worse and worse. And they're choosing that, knowing that it's wrong. But, well, God says you're supposed to be forgiving and love your enemies and, and pray for them, even though the spiteful use you. And, you know, you got to go the extra mile all the time. And you got to make sure that you just keep blessing them even though they curse you and I'm thinking to myself what for they're disrespectful to you your family your kids people in your life your life too you just being nice to me ain't enough some people go well as long as you're nice to me it's all good no if I don't see you be nice to other people I don't want you in my life if and why would I want to know about certain people? They clearly are doing illegal things, stupid things, immoral things, such as harming people. I don't want to know about you. I don't want to be bothered with you. But this whole turn the other cheek all the time, it's like, no. Even as a faith-based person, you have to watch the sinners that you keep. You can't have every sinner in your life. You can't have every sinner in your kids' lives. You can't have every sinner in your mates' lives. You can't have every sinner in the life of you and your crew. You just can't do it. Some sinners should not be in church, should not be in a mosque, should not be in a synagogue, should not be in a temple, because not every soul becomes Paul. Some sinners stay Paul. I'm sorry. Some sinners stay Saul the rest of their lives. Some sinners stay Saul the rest of their lives. Yes, I'm. Yes, I know. I know a lot of you're like you said the word sinner. Do you? But no, I'm just using language that faith based. I'm speaking a way that faith based people understand because I want them to understand. That's why I'm talking like this. And. There's a difference between helping a Zacchaeus, right, change his life. Yes, some people become positive 
once you show them how awful negativity is and you give them healthy incentives to get and stay positive as a person, there's a difference between that and inviting permanent danger and permanent hazardous humans in your home. So I didn't see I, I didn't see believers really talk about how dangerous toxic people and pure evil folks can be, right? And so I'm really glad to talk about these things because these things, all these things are talking about Calvinism and Lutherism and uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and John Calvin's burning heretics. I I hate all that. I I I love Lutherans. I love Calvinists, right? I dislike John Calvin. I dislike Martin Luther. When I said I hate all that, I mean to say I hate all of the things that keep people from Jesus. I'm not talking about any denomination or any people. I just want that to be made clear.